Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series in the book of Matthew called The Mysteries of Compassion. So turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 to 23, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Keys of the Kingdom. Here's a story I've heard several times. I, I don't think it's true. I wish it was. At any rate, so the story goes, a man was accepting tickets to get onto a train. So the lineup was long and the ticketing process was making the line even longer. And, you know, people were complaining and said he should just open the gate and let everyone in for free. Take care of the tickets another time. You know, the ticketing agent refused to give in to those demands and checking the tickets as fast as he could. And finally, someone shouted, you're not very popular with this crowd to which the agent pointed the offices that were overlooking his ticketing gate. It had the offices of the management. And he said, yeah, but I'm really popular with the folks up there. Now, I use that illustration just to get a sense of both authority and how authority is delegated. So the ticket taker could only demand compliance from his passengers, not on his own authority, but because of a delegated authority. His authority came from on high. Well, think of another example, the police. Without the authority of the police, violent men would rule the land. You and I know that. But if the police act on their own authority rather than on delegated authority, well, in that case, the police are the violent men and women. There's a unique authority that God has entrusted to his church. That authority is that the church of Jesus Christ has been entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. So what are those keys and are they the keys to heaven? You know, some people have felt so. Especially in the Middle Ages, it was believed that popes and bishops and even local priests had the authority to open the doors of heaven to people and also to close them. So is that the case? And indeed, when Jesus told his disciples he was giving them the keys of the kingdom, well, what was he talking about? What did he actually give them? And Jesus has taken his disciples to the region of Caesarea Philippi. And as he does, he wants to make sure they understand his identity. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the others, says, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're you're the Son of the living God. And with that, Jesus tells Peter that that wasn't revealed to him through flesh. It's not through human reasoning. It came to you. It came to you by God. And with that, we come to the passage we partially completed yesterday. It was Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, one of the issues in that text that I did not discuss yesterday is this matter of the gates of hell. And there are those who argue that the word hell, well, it should simply be translated as Hades, and by that, that means that the gates of death would not prevail, will rise from the dead. But that, I think, is to misunderstand how the gospel writers use the word Hades. You remember that Jesus in Luke 16, verse 23, was speaking of Hades, And he tells of a rich man who died and went to Hades, and then, says Jesus, and being in torment in Hades. So for Jesus, Hades is the place where the unrighteous not only keep on living, but suffer under torment. Jesus thought that about Hades, or we would call it hell. Hell and Hades are the same thing. But here in Matthew 16, 18, I think Jesus is using the term hell as an image of the kingdom of Satan. Of course, following the last judgment, all the unrighteous do go to hell. 
But hell is also the place where Satan has his kingdom. It's his headquarters. Well, very well, but what are the gates of hell? Well, in an ancient city, when wars were fought with swords and archers and catapults and things like that, it was important to have strong walls protecting a city. And the gates of a city were usually highly fortified, massive doors. They would have been reinforced with bars. They were often of bronze. And that was to ensure that an army couldn't burn their way through the gates, nor that a battering ram could splinter the door. And furthermore, most gates had places where archers from the inside could easily shoot anyone who tried to get in. I think Jesus is using that imagery here. He's describing Satan's kingdom. The gates of hell are fortifications that Satan uses in order to protect his kingdom. Let's see if we can uncover some of the New Testament teaching regarding that matter. Luke 13, verse 16. Jesus is being accused of healing a woman on the Sabbath, so listen to his response. And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? That's to say, Jesus believed and taught that some illnesses were a part of the kingdom of Satan. Now, listen. Illnesses are a part of the curse. As children of Adam, we were born into sin. With sin comes death, and sicknesses, well, they're a reminder that we're dying. We're all a part of the world of sin. But, says Jesus, Satan has a part in this. He not only tempted Adam to sin, but he also uses the consequences of sin, and he causes people to suffer. But he does more. I mean, listen to how Paul instructs Timothy regarding people who are lost. I'm reading 2 Timothy 2, 25 to 26. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. See, that's Satan's kingdom. He captures men and women. He makes them do his will. Or listen to how Paul describes our situation before we were in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And that's it. Satan has ensnared all the fallen sons and daughters of Adam to follow him in his designs. So we should assume then that the gates of hell must refer to the entrance of the kingdom of Satan's captives. So referring to the gates, just like an ancient city, the gates prevent the city of the evil one from being plundered or from being robbed. The gates ensure that Satan's victims remain his for all eternity. And I suppose the best analogy I could use is the analogy of the wall that used to run through the city of Berlin. The wall was there to ensure that the citizens of communist Germany could never escape. And in Jesus' analogy, the gates of hell prevent anyone from entering the city of the evil one and rescuing his captives. Now then, Jesus made a promise. The gates of hell would not prevail. Unfortunately for many people, they have, I think, the wrong image here. You know, from their perspective, the gates of hell are attacking the church. But we're promised the church is going to survive, that is, until Jesus comes. You see, from their perspective, the gates of hell are at our door, and we're doing our best to keep them out. But that's not the image here. The image we have here is the image of a militant church attacking the city of the evil one. The church has battering rams, and, and they're bashing down Satan's front door. 
And Jesus' promise is that the gates of hell will not prevail. They won't hold the church out. He's anticipating a victorious church, breaking down the gates, dragging out captives of the evil one from his horrifying city and setting them free. So imagine now the setting of Jesus' statement. He's taken his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. It's a a city that has numerous temples built into the cliffs. He has told Peter and the disciples that on this rock, that is, on the confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the son of the living God, that on that rock he builds his church. And yet here they are among the rocks of Caesarea Philippi that, that house the temples of the world's power centers and religions. Jesus is saying that he's going to build his church right here in the heart of Satan's kingdom, and Satan won't be able to keep his captives from the onslaught of the people of God. In short, Jesus is depicting his church winning men and women to faith in Christ. Every time someone is won to faith in Christ, we are in fact plundering Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom is being robbed of his captives, and Satan is powerless to prevent this from happening. And with that, we come to verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, here we come to the keys of the kingdom. We have just had the gates of hell, but here now are the keys to the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah. But how is it that the keys, that is, the entrance into the Messiah's kingdom, is given first to Peter and then to the disciples, and then finally, since Jesus is speaking about his church, how is it? that the church has received the keys of the kingdom. Some of you may be aware of the popular image of St. Peter standing at the entrance of heaven deciding who gets in and who stays out. Yeah, that image claims this text as a justification for that. Now, is that right? (laughs) No, it's not. Neither Peter nor the disciples, nor for that matter, the church, has the authority as to determine who gets into heaven and who stays out. Stay tuned, I'll explain that matter. Truth in Life Today has been a wonderful journey of ministry. So many thoughtful, insightful guests shedding light on challenging topics of Christian life. While now in 2020, we look forward to continuing Truth in Life Today, but with a renewed purpose. This year, Truth in Life Today is becoming more personal, more interactive. Truth in Life Today videos, both archived and current, will be easily accessible through our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel or at truthinlifetoday.com. How is it more personal, more interactive? Well, each episode will be designed around your personal Bible study or small group study with Dr. John Newfeld leading the way. And every episode will provide you with study notes available through truthinlifetoday.com. So join us as we launch a new generation of Truth in Life today. For more information or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us at backtothebible.ca. It's important to understand what Matthew 16:19 says and what it doesn't say. Look at the part of the verse that says, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. So we want to discover what Jesus meant by binding and loosing. Well, we have to peek ahead all the way to chapter 18 and verse 18. 
Their binding and loosing refers to either refusing to offer someone forgiveness or granting them forgiveness. We either bind them over in their sin or we loose them from their sin by giving them forgiveness. And here we are helped a great deal by looking closely at the grammar in the sentence about binding and loosing. Whatever you bind on earth, says Jesus, shall be bound in heaven. Now that phrase, shall be bound in heaven, in the Greek, it's in the future perfect tense. Now is that important? Yeah, that's very important. It's not as if the church goes around deciding who gets forgiven and who doesn't. The future perfect tense in this case should definitely be translated as follows. Whatever you bind on earth shall already have been bound in heaven. And then whatever you loose on earth shall already have been loosed in heaven. That is, God determines who's forgiven and who is not. The church can't act like a rogue police officer. The only authority the church has is a delegated authority. You see, that means the only people the church can forgive are those people whom God has already forgiven. Well, in in practical fashion, how does that work? Well, I think in practical fashion, it comes from the Great Commission found in the end of the book of Matthew. There, Jesus tells his disciples to go into all the world. They are to make disciples of men and women from every nation. And then Jesus tells them how to do that. They are to teach them everything that he has commanded them. And then he says, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here's an important principle of baptism. Whenever anyone's baptized, the person baptizing on behalf of the church of Jesus announces that this person is buried with Christ and raised again. We are announcing they are loosed from their sins, and that's essential. The church doesn't have the authority to baptize anyone. A person might want baptism, but none can be given until that person has confessed their sins and confessed Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord and as Messiah, Son of God. And because of this, a great many churches, in order to be faithful, will vigorously interview all would-be baptismal candidates to see if their faith is genuine. That's because the church understands it has no authority to declare someone released from their sins unless it's already been done in heaven. Just like a police officer enforcing the laws of the state, so the church enforces the laws of the gospel. The basis is delegated authority. Now then, those are the keys of the kingdom. The church has been given a unique authority. We publicly announce what God has done in heaven. That's why baptism is so joyful and awe-inspiring. We're announcing that we have the keys to say, this person has been loosed from their sins. This person is accepted into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior. Well, that's breathtaking, but Jesus is not done. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. So please understand the context. Jesus has just affirmed that, yeah, I am the long-expected Messiah. I am the one who will rule the world, and I am the Son of God, and you're on the ground floor. I'm building my church. Now remember, up to this point in time, the disciples have no idea as to what the church is outside of the fact that they know that they're the people of the Messiah. And here's their mission. We're going to be raiding Satan's kingdom. We're going to bash his front door down. 
will be taking his captives from him. I'll be forgiving the sins of Satan's former captives, and you're going to be affirming this by announcing it publicly. Their sins are forgiven. And if you're one of the disciples, what would you be thinking? I mean, wouldn't you think, I mean, it's great. Let's start. Let's get going. And then he says, don't tell people about this right now. And when you think about it from Jesus' perspective, well, he's, he's got a very good reason for commanding this. Already, John has told us in his gospel that, you know, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the people had wanted to make Jesus king by force. Uh, there was more the disciples needed to know before they ran off half-cocked and told everyone that he was the Messiah. Well, what did they need to know? Well, they needed to know something that would hit them like a cold smack in the face. You know, at this stage in his ministry, the Messiah would go to Jerusalem. There he would suffer greatly. The chief priests and the scribes, the, the key religious leaders in Jerusalem, they would succeed in putting him to death. And of course, a thorough study of the Old Testament, you know, that would have revealed this. You know, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, it's a messianic passage. But for the disciples, at least here at this point in their apprenticeship, I mean, they could see nothing other than glory and victory and an expression of divine power that attended the people of Jesus. We're going to be smashing down the devil's front door. I mean, let's grab the battering ramp and let's get going. You know, in today's terms, that's been called the doctrine of triumphalism. Triumphalism is the view that imagines that all the triumphs that we're going to have is going to happen right now. Let's punch the lights out of the devil. We're more than conquerors. We're victors. We're great warriors for Jesus who can stand against us. And then comes a harsh reality. You know, we're going to knock out the devil, but now we find out that the devil can, after we've raided his kingdom, respond in very vicious ways. He can inflict horrible suffering on God's people. Ah, but in this, Jesus is going to take the lead. He's going to suffer first. He's going to die first. He's going to be buried, and then, great news, he will be raised on the third day. But, of course, this resurrection on the third day, that that wouldn't have been clear to the disciples. They didn't know if he was speaking metaphorically. I mean, but the thought of suffering, well, that they did understand. So we come to verses 22 and 23. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, many Bible readers are shocked by this response. I mean, the word but, the beginning of verse 23, that's key. The but in the Greek, it's a strong adversative. It's emphatic. Peter, you're dead wrong. And then Jesus turns and faces Peter eye to eye and says, Go away, Satan. I mean, you've got to think, the whirlwind of what was going on in Peter's mind. I mean, just a few minutes ago, Jesus has said, this has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I mean, that's great. I've been chosen by God to speak the truth. But now, Peter, you're again being influenced, but this time, you've become a mouthpiece for Satan. Well, why? Because back in Matthew 4, at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, Satan had then come to Jesus and invited Jesus to worship him. And in response, Satan had said, I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. But Jesus knew that this was a great evil, not just because worshiping Satan is profoundly evil, and it is, but refusing the suffering of the cross, that also is a great evil. 
Jesus is saying, I can't build my church unless I have suffered and died for the sins of those whom I will redeem. Indeed, I will plunder Satan's kingdom through suffering and dying and thereby providing atonement. See, here's a lesson about the keys of the kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ gladly proclaims the gospel. It announces the kindness of God and the salvation from sin. We are entrusted with the keys of the kingdom. Whomever Christ saves, we announce gladly to the world. We are a part of Christ's shock troops, advancing like a mighty army, claiming men and women for Jesus. It's our divine calling. But make no mistake about it. Ours is not a triumphalistic calling. Ours is to rule in the way in which Jesus does in this hour. It comes through humility. It comes through suffering. It comes through loving Satan's captives. It comes at the cost of our own lives. It's not just Peter who has to learn that. We've all got to learn it. We who have been given the keys of the kingdom must know what kind of keys we hold, and we must also know the cost of holding those keys. In a sense, those keys are covered with blood, the blood of the righteous Son of God who was crucified for us, and then it is covered also by our own blood, for this is the cost of using these keys. John, thanks so much. Let me ask you a question because I think it's something we all struggle with, having putting the devil behind us, or, or what are those things that we do in our lives to ensure that we don't give him a foothold? Well, in Peter's case, clearly, um, he has not yet understood, first of all, what Jesus has taught. He's not understood the, the fullness of Scripture. Now, we don't blame him for that, but we recognize that's true. But, you know, for us, if you want to recognize the, the work of the evil one who is uh, attempting to tempt you in so many different ways, you know, be more and more fluent in Scripture. Um, ben, I mean, after all these years of studying the Scripture, I still take the light every single morning just simply opening my Bible and reading my section of Scripture for that day and saying, Lord, help me to understand. And it's amazing, after all these years, I don't know how many times I've read the Bible through, but I know this, I'm still discovering that I've either forgotten or I haven't seen what God has for me, and it helps me to understand where temptation is coming from. So the Scripture, uh, prayer, a fellowship with believers, I mean, all of these things, and continual asking of the Holy Spirit to, you know, to come and, and renew our own hearts that we love the things of God. These keep the devil behind us. We ought to do all of those. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Imagine walking the very streets that Jesus walked, or placing your foot into the Sea of Galilee. If experiencing the very places Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others lived and taught is something you've always wanted to do, then make plans to join Back to the Bible Canada for our 2021 Israel Experience. Consider this your personal invitation to join Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld. Laugh Against Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests, along with the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team for a trip of a lifetime, April 11th to the 19th, 2021. Experience the sights, sounds, history, and culture of Israel, making the Bible come alive. And for those who'd like to extend their experience, we're also offering a Jordan extension. 
So to learn more or to register today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.